the morning and already the ghosts are raising holy hell. Down at A6, the Lutherans badger me to cut the weeds. In Founders Grove, old man Pinnacott rants about obelisk corrosion. And in the Garden of Hope, a hundred haggard war veterans implore me to relight the eternal flame. But between the dying elms and the toppled headstones and the punk kids fornicating in the Union soldiers' rest, I've got a lot on my plate today. My official title at Silent Park is Head Caretaker, though the positions of Assistant Caretaker, Associate Caretaker, and Auxiliary Caretaker were eliminated long ago. Now it's just me, the cemetery manager, and Jimmy, our occasional gravedigger who shows up every couple of months needing an advanced paycheck or the keys to the hearse. Across the road, the bargain grave and crematorium gleams chrome in the morning sun, and already the parking lot is nearly full. The customers greeted at the door by an attractive, cheerful 20-something in a corporate smock. As I sidestep beer bottles and broken urns, the bargain grave's skinny smokestack intermittently spits ash into the crisp springtime air. Another potential customer lost to the competition. On the path of military valor, I pass Rachel, the new girl, who's wandering lost among the Civil War veterans and bawling her eyes out. She died last week in a car crash, and since Jimmy was God knows where, I buried her myself, next to some old world Swedes. Every morning, she wakes up expecting a beeping alarm clock, a warm, queen-sized bed, and scrambled eggs waiting downstairs. But instead, there are rows of graves, and a translucent family chattering in Swedish, and she's sent screaming through the cemetery until collapsing from exhaustion. Hey, sweetheart, I say, shooing away the Union soldiers ogling her unclothed ankles and chins. Your grave's this way. Follow me. I lead her through the Jewish section and past the towering monuments of civic leaders and industrialists and remind her, for the third consecutive day, that she is dead. Everyone dies sooner or later, but no one likes to admit it, especially when it actually happens. Instead, people think they're either dreaming or the victim of a cruel, elaborate hoax. Of course, in some ways, death is a cruel and elaborate hoax, but I don't say that to the ghosts. I try to stay positive. Some morning, isn't it? I say to the girl. Is it? She says, wiping away her tears. Yes, I say. It's a real beaut. As I walk the new girl back to her grave, I announce Silent Park's points of interest, the Pentecost Monument, the Archibald Mausoleum, the Tomb of the Unknown Yankee. The Unknown Yankee himself crosses our path, lumbering through the grounds in search of his missing head. Everyone in the cemetery calls him Mel. A few years ago, I'd host an orientation session once a month, acquainting the recently deceased with the layout of the cemetery and introducing them to the other ghosts. We'd do icebreakers and meet and greets, and in the evening we'd have a boisterous communal sing-along. But then, the bargain grave stole all our business, and orientation was cancelled. The new girl is the first person we've buried in six months, and the way things are going, she might be the last. Here we are, I say, pointing to her grave. Home sweet home. Resting above the new girl's grave is a flat bronze marker that says, 
for Rachel Rockmore, 1987-2005. Surrounding the marker are hundreds of flowers left by her family and classmates. Roses, white calla lilies, carnations, chrysanthemums. There are photographs and poems and handwritten notes. Forever in our hearts, rest in the Lord. We will never forget you. Rachel stares at the memorial diorama as if it was an avant-garde art installation, struggling to make sense of the colors, the fragrances, the scribbled messages. So, are you dead too, she says. Nope, I say. I'm slim. I'm the caretaker. My initial job description was straightforward. I was supposed to maintain the grounds, prepare the burials, assist the bereaved. Then the ghosts appeared, a pioneer woman ranting about the evils of synthetic fabrics, a six-year-old fond of kicking the Civil War hero's shins, a Depression-era newspaper man enraged with the font of his epitaph. Everything was somehow my fault. Withered flowers, faded lettering, stolen remains, you name it. The ghosts were relentless. I always imagined the afterlife as being peaceful and serene, like an inspirational poster in a dentist's office. But, in truth, it's more like a root canal. Hey there, Slim. How you doing? Says Mr. J, the cemetery manager, approaching from the office. So, this is the new girl's gravestone. Red granite. Good choice. That's the state rock, you know. Yes, it's a good rock, I say. Shame about the girl, though, says Mr. J. Did you see her picture in the paper? She's quite the looker, and I don't usually go for the younger girls. I like my women more experienced, someone who's been around the world 80 days, if you know what I'm saying. But this one, she looks like she knows a trick or two. It's too bad she's dead. Rachel, snake-coiled and crimson-faced, explodes into a kinetic frenzy, slapping and strangling and clawing the air where Mr. J should be. Mr. J offers a few parting nuggets of wisdom before returning to the office, but all I can hear are Rachel's hyperactive screams as she clutches at empty matter. I'd like to comfort her, offer a handkerchief, stroke her hair, etc., but her intangibility renders conventional methods of consolation useless. The best I can do is crouch nearby and offer inarticulate words of solace. It's okay, sweetheart, I say. He's a jerk. Don't get so worked up about it. It's not that, says Rachel. It's just, he couldn't see me, could he? No, I say. He's alive. You're dead. Upon hearing this, Rachel bursts into sobs. I admit it's not the sort of thing a girl wants to hear. Come on, Rachel, I say. It's not so bad. You'll make plenty of friends here, I promise. Friends, screams Rachel. The only person who can see me is you, and you're a grave digger. Caretaker, I say. I'm a caretaker. And you're not alone here. Your friends will be the ghosts. But I hate ghosts, says Rachel. I'm afraid of ghosts. Well, I say, now you are one. Just then, Mel saunters past, groping at the gravestones, hoping to discover his missing head. His fingers wriggle like hooked worms, grasping at nothing as he passes through tombstones and tree trunks, growing fainter and fainter until he's scarcely a blur, a trick of the light in the hazy morning. 
Rachel's eyes stay fixed on where he once stood, searching for the slightest trace of the headless wanderer. Is that him, or just a cloud of insects? Is that him, or just a rustling of leaves? Meanwhile, I'm on the path of military valor, headed for the Union soldier's rest, trying to remember the first line of the battle hymn of the Republic. Nothing comes to mind, so I sing in Dixie instead. Surprisingly, I know all the words. When I get within earshot of the soldiers, I'll switch to Yankee Doodle Dandy. There's no sense in pushing my luck this early in the day. Sometimes it's just not a Dixie Morta. Speedway Road for the bargain grave. The girl at the door flashes an obligatory smile, and I triple my pace, nearly tripping over my own feet as I rush through the entrance, staring at my shoelaces. I don't have a problem talking to dead girls, but alive ones I can't handle. Once inside, I head for the Dial-A-Grave kiosks, where the lady in black stuffs lilies of the valley into the coin return slots. The lady in black used to be a fixture at Silent Park, strolling the grounds for hours and leaving white roses on the anonymous graves, but when the bargain grave opened, she abandoned our cemetery for the conveniences of free Folgers coffee and indoor climate control. I've come here once a week for two years, ever since Dad bought Mom a dial grave on my 21st birthday. He always talked about buying her a plot at Silent Park when he saved up enough money, but then he lost her ashes when we moved to Milwaukee and decided that, without anything to bury, it wasn't worth the 5000 bucks. The disappearance of my mother's remains didn't bother me at first, after all, I was only four years old, but when I returned to my hometown to work at the cemetery, it consumed me to the point of madness. When the ghosts first appeared, I thought everyone was my mother. The prostitutes, the old hags, even the bearded lead miners. And only gradually did I accept that she would never materialize. That, like her ashes, she would be lost forever. So, instead, I come to the dial grave to press the gray touchstone buttons and wait for my mother's voice to crackle in the earpiece. If you know your party's extension, please dial it now, says the phone, and four taps and three rings later, I get the message mom left on her machine the night she died. Hi honey, it's me. They didn't have the ground round, so I went with a chuck. You can get the grill started. I'll be home soon. Oh, and make sure you use the hardwood charcoal this time. Love you. Bye. Then there's a beep, and it's my turn to talk. Hi, Mom, I say. It's been another crazy week at the cemetery. 
In chronological order, I list the things that have gone wrong since we last spoke. Vandals toppled ten more headstones, drunken teenagers had a threesome in the Archibald Mausoleum, the annual intra-cemetery track meet was cancelled due to lack of interest, and Mr. J lost what little was left of the perpetual care fund to the slot machines at the Ho-Chunk Casino. Barring a Frank Capra miracle, our only shot at avoiding bankruptcy is selling out to the bargain grave. Things are grim, Mom, I say. If I didn't have such a low opinion of the dead, I'd kill myself. I talk about Rachel, who died as my mom did, killed by a drunk driver. Her parents were well-to-do and went with us over the bargain grave, assured by Mr. J that Silent Park's shabby appearance was due to comprehensive renovations. The burial brought out half the town, and while the flesh-and-blood humans cried and embraced and stood in the light rain, stoic and numb, the ghosts gathered on an overlooking hill, watching the action with mild interest, as if stumbling upon a mime in the park. By the time the pallbearers lowered the casket, the ghosts were gone, the hill empty as a jazz choir performed Rachel's favorite song. I see trees of green, I sing to my mother, red roses too, I see them bloom for me and you, and I think to myself. Just then, a computerized voice announces that I have 30 seconds remaining, so I say my goodbyes and hang up the phone, kissing the earpiece before an aging woman in polyester takes my place. My dad bought the economy plan, so it'll be another week before I can call without paying an overtime fee. The lady in black stirs half and half into her free coffee, and I leave through the side door to avoid the greeter, sneaking a furtive backward glance as I speed walk to my car. She's done something to her hair since the last time I saw her. It looks nice. Back at Silent Park, a TV crew is set up in the Catholic section, testing their sound equipment and shooting B-roll of the vandalized headstones. Block Nelson, the locally famous reporter, examines his hairstyle in the side-view mirror of the NBC4 van and makes several critical adjustments before grabbing a microphone and reading from an oversized cue card. Overgrown weeds, crumbling walkways, broken graves, and broken promises, NBC4's Action Eye Team takes you for a less-than-peaceful walk through Silent Park Cemetery in part three of our continuing series, Dishonoring the Dead. A queue of curious ghosts assembles, mostly housewives from the industrial age, drawn to Block Nelson's rugged, chiseled features. I try to slip into the office undetected, but Nelson spots me and instantly scrambles for an interview. I sprint through the Union soldier's rest, weaving in and out of the identical marble headstones, and leap into the riding mower, turning on the ignition just as Nelson sticks his microphone in my face. The roar of the engine drowns out his shouted questions, and I drive in a continuous circle, circumscribing the action eye team like a carousel horse around a calliope. After five minutes, Block Nelson tires of the charade and storms off to the van, but I keep circling until NBC's gone, just in case. I still haven't eaten my lunch, so I head for the office where a crumpled, reused Wendy's bag has got my name on it. On the way, I pass Rachel, who, 
as usual, is crying. Hey there, Apple Blossom, I say. What's the matter? Well, for starters, she says, I'm dead, alone, and decomposing. Ah, oh, come on, Rachel, I say. Buck up, kid. Sure you're dead, but you're not alone. The Astronomy Club meets at 9pm tonight by the Pentecost Monument, and they're always looking for new members. You should stop by. Great, the Astronomy Club, says Rachel, staring at blackness with the dead. Sign me up. Rachel buries her head between her knees, and I sit beside her, silent, listening to her heavy, uneven breaths. I have a strong urge to touch her, but there's nothing to touch. I can only watch her chest sink and swell, sink and swell. So, is this it? says Rachel, her head emerging from her lap. Isn't there supposed to be more? Isn't this sort of anticlimactic? I don't have an answer for that, I say, but if you ask the ghosts, most will tell you they're still waiting for something to happen. Like what, says Rachel? Angels and harps? Seventy-two virgins? Yes, things like that, I say. Anything, really. I look at Rachel and wonder if my mother has the same colorless eyes, if she too cries every morning, desperate for an explanation that no one can give her. I hope she has a caretaker, someone to guide her through death, someone better than me who can only sit and search for a meaningless phrase that sounds like profound wisdom. All things must pass, Rachel, I say. I'll see you tomorrow. The title of a George Harrison album. This is the best I can do. After work, I go home, drink a six-pack, turn on the TV, and curse the furniture until I fall asleep. My usual routine. I wake up to the ten o'clock news, and there I am on the screen, poker-faced, the camera swiveling as I drive the riding mower in a never-ending circle. The screen fades to black, and an excitable shirtless man tries to sell me home fitness equipment. It only takes two things to change your life, says the man. Fitness flex, and you. I reach for the remote, but it's too far away. Also, I'm pretty sure it's broken. I sink into the couch, wipe the drool off my chin, and watch the attractive men and women changing their lives on my television. 1-800 numbers flash on the screen I don't even bother to read, and the shirtless man reappears with a sexy girlfriend massaging his pecs. Don't wait for your future, he says. Buy a fitness flex. Today. I wonder if he was once like me, pale and scrawny, paralyzed on the couch, waiting for the future. Or maybe he was born like that, bronzed, barrel-chested, bulging with virility, a baby Hercules doing bicep curls minutes after leaving the uterus. Either way, now he's on TV with girls caressing his rippling muscles while I'm on TV mowing in circles, the tagline, Dishonoring the Dead, branded on my forehead. Yes sir, I'm a minor celebrity now, a real Horatio Alger success story. Look at me, Mom. I'm on TV. Look at me. You think you got it made. You got a brand new car. And you're always getting late.
Silent Park to find Jimmy jimmying the door of the hearse. His hair is three inches longer than the last time I saw him and is decorated with what appear to be plastic beads. Oh, hey there, Slim, says Jimmy, nonchalantly adjusting the end of a dismantled coat hanger. Could I get the keys to the hearse? I need to take it to the car wash. There's a hose behind the office, I say. The weather's nice. You can scrub it with your shirt. Ah, oh, come on, Slim, says Jimmy. That's no good. It needs to be spotless. I gotta take it to the lingerie car wash on Speedway. The lingerie car wash, I say. I thought the last time you went there they banned you for life. No, no, says Jimmy. That was all a big misunderstanding. Listen, Slim. Lingerie car wash is the best place in town, hands down. They're real professionals. I walk to the tool shed to get some weed killer, and Jimmy tags along, the beads jangling in his hair. Why are you so worried about the hearse? I ask Jimmy. You got a hot day tonight? Nothing like that, he says. It's all business. This guy I know got me a gig. You know what tonight is? I shake my head. Prom night, my man, says Jimmy, triumphantly. You're driving high school-aged children to prom in a hearse, I say. A hearse is pretty much a limo, says Jimmy. It's a versatile automobile. I rummage through the shed for the weed killer, but all I can find are rusted tools, broken electrical equipment, and empty bottles of Milwaukee's best. Probably either the vandals or the sex-crazed teenagers were here, though what they did with our weed killer is beyond me. If I had to guess, I'd say it wasn't anything garden-related. Alright, Jimmy, I say. You're gonna make yourself useful and help me pull some weeds. Yeah, sure, Slim, says Jimmy. Oh, one more thing. They needed a bunch of chaperones for the dance and all, so I sort of told them that you and me would do it. What? I say. You said I'd chaperone the Falls High prom? I went to Falls High, Jimmy. I know, I told them that, says Jimmy. Your alumni status is a valuable asset to the team. Sorry, Jimmy, I say. That place has too many bad memories for me. Now help me with these weeds. Down on my hands and knees, yanking pigweed and dandelions from the family plots, I'm accosted by a stream of angry ghosts, convinced that my priorities should lie elsewhere. Polish my grave, they shout. Clean my epitaph. I ignore them like always. After all, Jimmy's right next to me, and under no circumstance do I want him thinking I'm crazier than he is, but the relentless cacophony of voices makes my already menial labor even more unbearable. Jimmy wanders off, unenthusiastic about the weed pulling, and I swivel around to give the ghost the finger, only to discover Rachel standing timidly in front of me. I'm sorry, I say, that wasn't meant for you. 
Rachel's face breaks into a half-smile. For a moment, she looks like the Rachel Rockmore in the newspaper, a wispy Midwestern beauty with mischief dancing in her eyes. The effect is startling. It's almost as if she's come back to life. But then Jimmy saunters back, and the smile fades from her lips. Stop on my grave later, she says. She opens her hand to a frozen wave goodbye, and I do the same, our palms fusing together as we share the same molecules, my world interjoined with hers. A reflective spark flickers in her eyes, and she withdraws her hand and turns away, slowly retreating down the path to her grave. What you looking at there, Slim, says Jimmy. Nothing, I say. Just a beautiful morning, that's all. Sure is, says Jimmy. A real beaut. As we admire the heavenly Wisconsin springtime, a commotion emanates from the main entrance, and above the indecipherable din, I hear Mr. J bellowing at top volume. Come on, people, he says. Let's be reasonable here. I look to the east and see a crowd of sign-waving, slogan-chanting agitators marching down the central pathway as an NBC4 cameraman records their raised fists and outraged faces, comically exaggerated whenever the protesters are aware of being filmed. They congregate in the Lutheran section where I'm pulling weeds and assail me with organized shouting, no justice, no peace, respect the dead. At this point, I notice that all their signs are made out of cardboard and cut to resemble gravestones. R.I.P. and Justice, says one of the signs. I'll bet they thought that was really clever. We are here today, says their leader, a middle-aged woman in a gingham house dress, to demand justice for our dearly departed, our loved ones who lie beneath the soil at Silent Park. We have entrusted the cemetery management with the memory and legacy of those closest to our hearts, and they have betrayed that trust with their lies and negligence. No longer will we allow our family plots to be overgrown with weeds. No longer will we allow our loved ones' gravestones to be split into pieces. No longer will we allow Silent Park to dishonor the dead. At this, the crowd explodes into a raucous communal chant, clapping their hands and banging tambourines in angry activist Mardi Gras. As Mr. J futilely pleads for calm, the ghosts arrive in massive numbers, parodying the repetitive slogans and rattling their bony fists. One ghost, however, breaks away from the rest of the dead and floats through the humans, hysterically waving her arms at a woman in the center of the crowd. The ghost is Rachel, and the woman is her mother. Mom, mom, she screams. It's me, it's Rachel. Rachel shakes and shrieks, but her mother's expression never changes. It remains locked in a vice grip of pure hatred, spewing forth fire and vitriol with the other agitated housewives. All sound fuses into one maddening insect hum, and the world is nothing but human jaws flapping and ghosts' fists shaking and Rachel's fingers clawing her mother's face again and again, searching for a door to the living world somewhere in her mother's skull. I've had all I can take, so I sprint for the hearse with Jimmy following behind, and with the frantic jingle of my keys, we leap inside 
locking the doors just in time. The protesters slap the windows and shout muffled slogans, and Jimmy and I sink into our leather seats, collecting our breath and staring at the delirium outside. For the longest time, we are silent, motionless, decompressing in the hearse's interior. But then, haltingly, I turn my head and say, Jimmy, I never thought I'd say this, but which way is it to the lingerie car wash? After the friendly service of the lingerie car wash and the transport of ten hairspray-soaked teenagers to Lombardino's, the only restaurant in town that could conceivably be referred to as nice, it's 7.30 and we're at the Falls High Gymnasium, the proud home of the 2005 Spring Prom, theme, Under the Sea. While the kids finish a handle of bourbon in the back of the hearse, Jimmy and I report to the chaperone's desk where the event coordinator issues us our name tags. Due to a misprint, mine says slime. All right, here are the rules, says the coordinator, a spider-veined senior with silver hair sprouting from his ears. Last couple of dances, we had a lot of problems with freak dancing. You know what freak dancing is? No, I say. Jimmy just smiles. Freak dancing, says the coordinator, is when a boy and girl rub their sensitive areas against each other in a lewd and lascivious fashion, front to front, front to back, sometimes even on the cotton-picking gymnasium floor. The old man's lip quivers with disgust, while Jimmy keeps smiling, presumably envisioning an orgy of freak dancers writhing on the three-point line. So here's the protocol, says the coordinator. Any hint of sexually suggestive dancing, and you blow the freak whistle. Holding a black referee's whistle to his lips, the old man produces a shrill, harsh tweet, pointing at an imaginary teenage couple with a vigorously shaking finger. You there, he says. No freak dancing. Satisfied with his demonstration, the old man hands us our whistles and outlines the rest of the evening's guidelines. They get one warning, he says. The second infraction results in an automatic expulsion. Other than that, it's the usual. No weapons, no booze, no drugs, and once you leave, you can't get back in. We got four chaperones tonight, so each of you gets a quadrant. Jimmy, you're northeast, and Slime, you're northwest. I follow the out-of-bounds line to my quadrant and observe the decorations. Construction paper waves adorning the bleachers, 
scuba diving equipment scattered on the punch table, an eight-foot fiberglass swordfish mounted on a basketball hoop. Instead of a DJ, there are four rotating loudspeakers arranged in a square that emit a burble of clattering, otherworldly noises. That's Stockhausen's contact, says a balding man who's noticed my interest in the loudspeakers. It can be performed with loudspeakers, piano and percussion, or just with the loudspeakers. As the school band director, the administration asked me to provide some music that wouldn't encourage the kids to bump and grind, so I prepared a program of the early serialists, as well as their more forward-minded precursors. Later on, I'm going to wheel out the school's upright piano and perform the first two hours of Eric Satie's Vexations. Before I can reply, the band director has wandered to the center of the gym to assess the placement of the speakers, swiveling his head to analyze the paranoid burps and bleeps erupting around the gym. The dance has technically started, but only a handful of children are present, and none of them are dancing. Instead, they cluster around the punch table or the basketball hoop, taking furtive sips from plastic cups and admiring the swordfish. Figuring there's no immediate danger of uninhibited freak dancing, I wander to the restroom, a decision I instantly regret. Hey Slim, is that you? Horror of horrors. It's Mr. Dockers, my high school gym teacher. Yeah, I say, it's me. But your name tag says, yeah, I know, I say, it's a mistake. Well, how the heck are ya, says Mr. Dockers. You back from school already? Nope, I say. I never went to college. I didn't think so, he says. So, what you been doing with yourself? I've been asked this question by my elders too many times to count, and not once has it yielded a conversation that hasn't made me want to claw my eyes out. I'm a spy, I say, for the CIA. No, you're not, says Mr. Dockers, laughing. I saw you on the TV. You're a gravedigger. Caretaker, I say. You mean, I'm head caretaker. And if you knew what my job was, why did you ask? Mr. Dockers washes his hands and then methodically dries them with a paper towel, which he crumples and shoots like a basketball over my right shoulder. I turn my head and watch the paper ball gracefully descend into the mouth of a plastic trash bin. Because, says Mr. Dockers, his hand on the door, I wanted to hear you say it. Mr. Dockers leaves, and I hurl the trash bin at the stalls, grunting it like an Olympic power lifter. I sidestep the soggy paper towels now littering the floor, and try to wash my face under the automatic faucet, but I can't get the damn thing to turn on. I wave my hands in every direction, fluttering my fingers like an Indian dancer, but still no water comes out, and I resign myself to dab my gaunt, perspiring face with a paper towel. Unfortunately, Mr. Dockers took the last one. When I exit the restroom, I'm ready to blow my freak whistle and snap a dirty dancing teenager in half, but the first thing I see is a woman my age, wearing a volunteer's name tag. Slim, she says. Is that you? Her name tag says Sandra, and though she obviously knows me, I have no idea why. Well, today, I'm slime. I say. Then it hits me. Sandy Gordon, Earth Science, Senior Year. 
we were partners for the final project, the geologic history of Wisconsin's Door Peninsula, which we got a B-plus on, because Sandy did all the work. She had glasses then, and an embarrassing lisp that everyone made fun of. God, I haven't thought of her in years. It's good to see you, Slim, says Sandy. I didn't know you were still in town. I thought you moved away. I did, I say. Now I'm back. Oh, that's great, says Sandy. And I think, you're a liar. Yeah, great, I say. It's ultra-fantastic. The rotating loudspeakers go silent, and the band director wheels an upright piano to the center of the gymnasium, where Freddy the Pharaoh, the false high mascot, is painted on the floor. This event goes unnoticed by the kids, who remain at the punch table, trying on the scuba equipment. So, do you keep in touch with anyone from Falls, says Sandy? No, I say. I didn't really have any close friends here. Me neither, she says. But I'm teaching here now. Isn't that crazy? Um, I say. But my attention wanders to the entrance, where the boys from the hearse chase the girls with the detached head of the swordfish. Less than a week ago, they were at Rachel's funeral, leaving handwritten notes on her grave, forever in our hearts. We will never forget you. And now, here they are, whooping it up at prom with a fiberglass swordfish and heads full of bourbon. The janitor wrestles the fish head from the boys and gives them a stern lecture while the girls retreat to the restroom to touch up their mascara and adjust the straps of their prom dresses. I wonder what sort of dress Rachel bought. Did her parents keep it? Did they return it? What would she look like? under the sea, in satin and sequins on the gymnasium floor. I close my eyes and try to picture Rachel as a freshly crowned prom queen, but she keeps appearing as an anguished, hysterical ghost clawing at the air and screaming for her mother. So, says Sandy, do you think chaperones are allowed to dance at this thing? I don't know, I say. I better get back to my quadrant. There's an awkward pause, and the janitor briskly walks by, headed for the double doors behind us with the splintered head of the swordfish. Oh, okay, says Sandy. It was nice talking to you. Maybe we could have lunch together sometime. And why would we do that, I say. What, she says, taken aback. I just thought, you didn't like me in high school, why would you like me now, I say. Do you know what I do for a living? I work at a cemetery. Don't you think that's creepy? Sad? Pathetic? Why would I think that, says Sandra? What's wrong with you? I'm going back to my quadrant, I say. Nice talking to you. I leave Sandra and don't look back. The band director sits at the piano and examines the single page in front of him, entitled Vexations by Eric Satie. A note at the bottom of the score reads, To play this motif 840 times in succession, it would be advisable to prepare oneself beforehand, in the deepest silence, by serious immobilities. I shouldn't have left Rachel like that, drowning in a sea of the living, desperately signaling for her mother. I should have helped her. That's my job, isn't it? I'm a caretaker, a protector of souls. But what good am I, anyway? I can't explain anything. Can't reverse anything. Can't even touch her. I can 
can only flee the cemetery and stand in the corner of the bleacher ocean, scanning the northwest quadrant for writhing teenagers, for breakers of the rules. The band director lifts the piano lid, raises his hands above the keys, and closes his eyes, inhaling deeply as I rub the whistle resting in my pocket and wait for something to happen. Everyone you know and everyone 